1: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. The natural world is full of amazing wildlife. One of our favorite animals to talk about on this show are whales. Whales were the focus of a three-year project by National Geographic photographer Brian Scarry. Today Where We Live, Scarry joins us to talk about Secrets of the Whales, the name of his new book and docu-series on Disney+. It's also the cover story of the May issue of National Geographic. Scary traveled to 24 locations around the globe, documenting whales like orcas, humpbacks, belugas, and sperm whales. Coming up, we talk about what he learned and what our role should be to protect these magnificent creatures. You can join us as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Brian Scary is joining us on Zoom today. Brian, such a pleasure to welcome you back to the show.
2: Thanks, Lucy, it's great to be here.
1: For our listeners who don't know, you're a native New Englander, and we first met at a Connecticut Forum panel that I hosted just a few years ago. But you've been taking pictures of marine wildlife for many years, so talk about why you decided to focus on whales specifically.
2: Yes, well, um, that's true. I've been doing this most of my life, I guess, um, over four decades. exploring the world's oceans and trying to tell stories through pictures of the animals and ecosystems that I encounter. And you know, there's been somewhat of a trajectory, I guess, in my career. When I first began as a photographer, I just wanted to make beautiful images of animals or places that interested me. And then over the years, I began to see a lot of problems occurring in the world's oceans. So much of my career focused on environmental issues and solutions, looking for solutions to these problems and among the animals i've worked with over the years i've been particularly enamored with whales there's just something very special about being in the presence of whales in the ocean and my last big whale project for national geographic was a story about the uh, right whales the north atlantic right whales in particular the most endangered whale in the world that was published in 2008 and since that time i was interested in doing a big multi-species story on whales or project And the challenge was finding a narrative and how I would connect the dots between these various species. And I was reading a lot of scientific publications, talking to scientists, friends, and I noticed this notion of culture emerging, that some of the latest and greatest science was revealing that whales, like humans, have rich ancestral traditions, things that they do and pass on that are important to them. So as I did further research, I realized this was a a new way of looking at not only whales, but really our relationship through nature um, with the planet.
1: I definitely wanna talk about what you learned and observed, Brian, uh, during this project. But first, can you describe what it's like to be in the water next to a whale? Because we know they're, they're so huge, but to fully comprehend what that's like.
2: Yes, absolutely. You know, for context, I would first begin by saying that Um, as an underwater photographer or somebody in in the ocean exploring, you know, we don't have the luxury of using telephoto lenses. For example, I, I joke with my terrestrial counterparts, other photographers and filmmakers that work mostly on land. And, you know, I say that Unlike you guys or gals, I don't have the ability to sit in a camouflaged blind in some remote location and use a 600 millimeter lens and wait for weeks or months for some elusive animal to wander past and then get those images. I have to get in the water. I have to get close. The visibility has to be good. Even in the clearest of water, I can't use a long lens. I have to get within a couple of meters usually of my subject. And that means that the animal has to allow me close and in some cases there's a a mild tolerance in other cases there's actually engagement with whales i mean these are some of the most intelligent cognitively aware animals on the planet they have very big brains and you're never going to sneak up on them so you know (laughs) what it's like to be in the presence of a whale is awe-inspiring but it's also because they are letting you close they know that you're there and they're choosing to interact with you so you know whether it's a an orca in the Norwegian Arctic, or a humpback in the South Pacific, um, that experience is, is quite unlike anything else I've, I've ever had, because they are, it's like an alien species that's sort of, you know, communicating with you on some level.
1: You can see some of Brian Scarry's uh, amazing photographs on our website wmpr.org where we live. And as I mentioned, it's also the cover story of this month's National Geographic. I'm always fascinated watching the docu-series as well, Brian, and looking at your photographs. When you, when you look them in the eye or when they're looking at you, what do you think they're thinking about?
2: <laughs> well, that is a great question. Um, you know, I, I suppose It depends on the species and the specific circumstance in which I'm interacting with these whales. You know, I I think about times when I was in the South Pacific in places like Tonga or the Cook Islands, and I'd go out early in the morning on a boat and in some quiet little cove where there's palm trees and the sun is just gleaming through, I would see a, a humpback whale mom with her little calf. The calf might be a day or two old. And, you know, I'm very cautious about the animal welfare. I don't want to charge in there or in any way disturb them. So it's, it's a very slow process. I will get in the water and maybe, you know, 150 meters away, very silently. I'm not using scuba. I'm just breath hole diving. So I'm snorkeling in very quietly. I'll move in until I'm at the edge of visibility. And then, you know, they know I'm there. And over time, I'll, you know, close that distance a little bit if they let me, if they don't seem agitated. So what are they thinking? You know, I suppose that that mom humpback is probably thinking, well, what is this thing? You know, <laughs> maybe they've encountered a, a human before underwater. And depending on their experiences with that human, you know, they may swim away or they may let me closer. The little calf, you know, I often think about I might be the very first human that that little guy or gal has ever seen. So I wanna make a good impression. I'm trying to be on my best behavior. I'm trying to calm my heart rate or my breathing. I don't wanna seem anxious or agitated in any way. Um, So that might be what they're thinking. You know, In another scenario, I'm with orca in the Norwegian Arctic and these are arguably the most intelligent animal in the ocean. And I, I write in my book, Secrets of the Whales, that being in the presence of an orca is like being scanned by a supercomputer. They probably know what I had for dinner last night. They know everything about me and they're operating on a, on a totally different level. Uh, And, and if they're feeding, you know, they're probably thinking, well, is this something that's going to compete with me or, you know, Oh, it's just, you know, one of those divers with a camera. I don't have to worry about that. Um, So, you know, there's, there's probably a lot going on in their minds and we can only guess really at what they're thinking.
1: And so you free dive and you said you don't use scuba. Why is that?
2: Really for two reasons. Uh, The first is that bubbles tend to scare marine mammals or particularly whales. Um, There are exceptions and I've had times in my career where I've been able to use scuba with whales, but generally speaking, it would be a deterrent. Um, I think in many marine mammal cultures and societies, bubbles are they mean something, it's a sign of aggression or a threat display or whatever. So that is noisy and and not particularly uh, comforting to whales. The other reason is that it, it, to, to work with whales, it, it's helpful to be nimble. Even if they are moving relatively slow underwater, they're generally moving faster than a human could ever possibly swim. So you're never gonna chase a whale to to get close to it. That's not going to be productive. But if they're socializing, if I'm with socializing sperm whales, for example, and there's a family of 10 or 12 whales and they're deeply engaged in their their own socialization and they're moving slowly through the water, if I'm encumbered with a 50 pound scuba tank and a weight belt and a buoyancy compensator and all that gear, it's going to slow me down. I'm just not going to be able to stay with them. So although it's limiting to use pre-diving as a technique, I can only hold my breath for maybe two or three minutes if all is going really well. um, I still find that that's more productive. Uh, You're you're very quiet and non-threatening and nimble to, to stay with them.
1: You're hearing Brian Scarry here on Where We Live. He's a National Geographic photographer and producer specializing in ocean wildlife. His newest book, Secrets of the Whales, as we talk about what he learned on this three-year project. You can join us if you have a question, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So let's get back to what you were talking about in terms of the scientists uh, beginning and seeing evidence that whales have a culture. We think of culture as being a human phenomenon. So let's start with the orcas that you photographed when you observe these pods. Talk about um, what culture they have and how that's different from behavior, Brian.
2: Right. Well, it's a a really great point, Lucy, and I would start by saying or or sort of paraphrasing what a a friend of mine, Dr. Shane Garrow, who's a, a whale biologist, studies sperm whales, he defined for me the difference between behavior and culture like this. He says behavior is what we do. Culture is how we do it. So, for example, most humans eat food with utensils. That is behavior, but whether you use chopsticks or knives and forks, is your culture and as he explained whales while not using utensils are doing things differently within a genetically identical species so they may isolate by language or dialects you know they form clans where multiple families speak the same dialect and they don't necessarily intermingle with other whales of the same species that speak another dialect. With the orca, as you mentioned, um, one of the things I focused on in terms of their culture is their preference for ethnic foods or international cuisine preferences. The orca that live in New Zealand, for example, they like to eat stingrays and those families are the only orca in the world that have mastered this technique for moving into very shallow water mangroves and harbors? They pick up a stingray, they turn it upside down in what's known as tonic immobility. They've learned how to essentially put the thing to sleep, and then they, you know, predate on it. They share the food with their family. The orca that live in Patagonia, Argentina. Again, just a couple of families are the only ones in the world that have mastered a technique for feeding and predating on sea lions, and they actually beach themselves at certain times of the year. They'll come up on the beach and try to grab one of those sea lion pups. So that is their culture. It's not only their preference for food, but then they teach their children, their their offspring, their calves, that very thing. It is the generational learning of passing on these traditions.
1: That's so fascinating to think that they're the same species, but depending on where they're located and their feeding styles, as you mentioned, the idea of passing along the the hunting uh, tips uh, to their offspring, what was it like to see that in front of you, Brian?
2: Well, it's extraordinary. Um, You know, I had done a a cover story for National Geographic magazine in 2015 about dolphins, dolphin intelligence. And dolphins, of course, are whales. They're just smaller toothed whales. So they're all part of the same family. And I sort of wanted to do a story about dolphin intelligence and cognition. And one of the cognitive biologists that I worked with early in that project, I suppose like many people, I asked him the, the obvious question, well, how smart are dolphins and he said to me you know brian i I can't tell you how smart they are but a better question is how do we know dolphins are smart what is it um, that we can tell makes them highly cognitive and one of those things was feeding strategies and he said you know it's rare in the animal kingdom for an animal in a specific species to develop different ways of catching food, depending where they live. You know, they they don't normally, most animals kind of do the same thing evidently, but I was doing that with dolphins. So I, I did this two-year project, um, ended up being the story, as I said, in, in 2015, but I was approaching it very clinically, you know, very scientifically. I was sort of at this 35,000 foot view, kind of looking down at these animals. And uh, even though I was in the water with them and watching, I was thinking purely from a science standpoint, um, It was this shift from 2015 to when I started working in 2017 on Secrets of the Whales uh, about this notion of culture and seeing it through that different lens. Once I was in the, you know, I created this project, I researched it, I talked to scientists, I wrote the proposals. And then once I got in the field and, and started to see, yeah, you know, what they're doing, this is their culture. You know, we can look at it very clinically in one one lens, but if we're seeing it for what it really is, it is these families doing things in a given region, just like humans do. Um, so, I, I, you know, for me to be able to change my my thinking on how I was seeing things was very important to this process.
1: Can you explain a little further about when you're seeing these feeding and hunting styles and, and how it's Culture versus just adapting because they're in a different environment or there's a different food source, Brian.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, again, I think there there may be some debate about that. But um, you know, one example that I would I would point to, and this was something that we didn't cover in uh, Secrets of the Whales, but there, there's a a population of orca, for example, that lives in the Pacific Northwest of North America, United States, and Canada, mostly the United States, I think. And this is a, a, a group of orca that feed on salmon. That is their, their preferred food. Uh, the, the rivers in that region have you know had dams built in them and has limited the amount of salmon. And, and I'm not fully versed in all the, the details, intricacies of, of that situation, but I know that the orca have been not able to get the salmon that they prefer to eat. And that some of those orca, although they are extremely capable, highly intelligent animals that are capable of changing feeding strategies and going out and feeding on something different, but those orca in the Pacific Northwest have, would rather die. They they starve to death than than to change their habits, their culture, on what they would feed on. So, you know, I think that speaks volumes about the fact that these are what's important to them these traditions are very important to them even though they are very very capable animals and we see orca you know in different parts of the world being very clever in terms of how they catch their preferred prey um but i think those kinds of things now conversely you know with the orca that i worked with for example in the norwegian arctic I first went to Norway to photograph orca back in 1994. I was one of the first to go up there because we had heard about the fact that orca were following herring, a type of fish, into the fjords, these deep water fjords in the fall, just days before the polar night when it's going to be dark 24 hours a day. And that they were using this unique strategy to create bait balls. They work cooperatively with sound and their dialects and flashing their white ventral side to scare the fish into tight bait balls and then they swim through and they slap them with their tail and stun them and then they go in and pick off the fish one at a time it is how they feed uh they corral the fish but in more recent times when I went back for Secrets of the Whales in 2018 the researchers that I worked with said they see that behavior very rarely these days and much more commonly the orca are choosing to hang out near commercial fishing boats that are pulling in tons of herring in their nets and they just grab the fish that spill out of the net you know which inevitably happens so it's i i I said this is like takeout food they're they're using less energy to make dinner they're just hanging out there getting some takeout food um and whether that is actually culture is unknown. You know, it seems to be spreading. Uh, maybe the orca are telling their buddies, you know, hey, there's a great new restaurant here. You, you don't have to work hard and you can get a nice dinner. Um, but whether that lasts over time, you know, I think it will be um, decided whether that is truly culture or not. So I, I think it, it is a matter of degrees and, and debate, but, but some things clearly seem to be cultural
1: is there another example I'm thinking about when I was watching the docu-series, again, Secrets of the Whales. I think it's in Patagonia where there's a pod and uh, the grandmother or mother is teaching the younger ones how to catch baby seals, but there was an orphan that became part of the pod that couldn't do it.
2: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, you bring up a, a great point as well. Science has shown that those orca families that have a grandmother present in the family uh, the the offspring tend to live much longer. They live five times longer than Orca that don't have a grandmother in the uh, in the hierarchy of the family. These are matrilineal societies. They are led by the older, wiser females. Um, but you know that teaching is very important. And and as we show in that episode, orca dynasty, um, the grandmother is indeed trying to teach this this young orca that strategy. And it takes many attempts before they are successful. Years sometimes. You know, one of the places that I worked for this project as well was the Falkland Islands and it's a little bit different than Patagonia, it's off Argentina, it's, it's much further offshore and there's two families of orca there that feed on elephant seal pups. So similar to what's happening in Patagonia, but different in the sense that these orca don't beach themselves. They don't have to come up on the beach and they actually swim into a little, what's known as a weanling pool where the elephant seal pups begin to go into the water when they're you know old enough to do so. And there's one or two females, the, the matriarchal female in each of these families that has figured out this strategy, but none of the other members, it seems, of her family have figured it out. The, the family that I was observing has a daughter, you know, the, the matriarch's daughter, who's very close to getting this technique. She came in several times and she turns sideways and hides her dorsal fin and, you know, she's so close to getting it, but we never actually saw her predate on one of those elephant seal pups. So this teaching continues um, and, you know, again, their survival somewhat depends on this in the sense that they have to, to learn those family traditions if they're gonna be able to do what, what their family has done for generations.
1: So we're talking about whale culture again, where behaviors that are socially learned and then shared widely and persist. And we've been focused on orcas, but humpbacks learn songs from one another. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, you know, when I wrote my proposal uh, for National Geographic, I, I had a section in there about the humpback song, and I I sort of equated it to the American Idol of the Sea, where they have a singing competition <laughs> every year. And, and, you know, again, I'm anthropomorphizing a little bit, but, you know, there is some truth to that. So humpback whale, males, the males of the species, Uh, sing songs. This has been known, of course, for a very long time. It's been studied for many decades by researchers. And the way it typically works is that the humpback whale males in the, I believe it's the eastern part of uh, Australia or uh, the Pacific, start each year with a competition of tunes. They each try out one of their songs and they try to um, see which song is going to be the the tune the winning tune for that particular year. And after a period of time, one tune gets to be selected. And these are when I say songs, I mean, these are maybe 20 minute long song whale whale songs that, may not exactly sound like a song to us. Parts of it are sort of lyrical and haunting, but other parts have weird sounds. It might sound like a creaking chair or a door closing or a baby hiccuping, and there's all these uh, human sounds that we attribute to the, what the sounds they're making. But um, But once that song sort of gets to be the winning tune, it gets adopted or copied by all the other male humpbacks and passed across the entire Uh, ocean, the, the Pacific Ocean. It has been described in scientific literature as the horizontal transmission of culture. And you will then hear that same song if you go to French Polynesia or the Cook Islands or Tonga or other places. They are essentially singing the same song. And there's evidence now that says it's passed into the Atlantic as well. So the interesting thing to me particularly about that more interesting even than that is that although researchers have studied this for many decades and have always believed that there is a, a courtship or mating component that it is you know a, a mating call um, that most researchers are not 100% convinced that that's all there is to it um, i've talked to scientists who've been studying this for many years and i asked them you know what percentage of the time do you actually see a female humpback you know, be attracted to a male, and they said it's, you know, less than 1%. So they still think that maybe it's the the notion of multiple humpbacks singing in a given area that attract the females to those waters, but there may be more to it. There may be more information or even culture encoded, perhaps, on those songs that are passed across the ocean every year.
1: We actually have a recording provided by the National Park Service uh, humpbacks recorded in the Glacier Bay National Park. Let's take a listen. Amazing to hear, Brian. Have you been in the water uh, near a humpback where, uh, again, you're able to see how they're communicating with each other?
2: I have been in the water when humpback whale males are singing. And actually that clip that you played is very interesting because, uh, you know, again, generalizations, but generally speaking, the humpback whales migrate annually between their uh, summer feeding grounds where they're feeding on fish, let's say, to their winter uh, mating and calving grounds. So the humpbacks that you would find in Alaska in the summertime are there to feed on herring fish. And then those whales migrate to Hawaii in the wintertime where the water is warm and clear and conducive to giving birth to the, to the baby whales. And that's where the mating and the singing and stuff generally occurs. So to hear those calls in Alaska, is interesting because that's not the place you would normally find a whale a humpback whale male singing but clearly there's something going on there so <laughs> I, I find that particularly fascinating but yes to your question of have it been in the water you know i don't see them communicating with each other per se but i have been in the presence of uh, male humpback whale singing Um, There was a a couple of times in the South Pacific, but one in particular, I remember I was in the Cook Islands off Rarotonga. I went out with a researcher friend of mine, Nan Hauser, and, um, you know, we put a hydrophone in the water and we could hear this song. But the problem with sound underwater is, although it's usually very loud, um, if you're anywhere in the general vicinity, you don't know what direction it's coming from. So we had to kind of fine-tune that I got in the water and eventually I saw this humpback whale male singing and quite often when the when the whale sings, they invert their body. They put their head down, their tail up, and they lie essentially motionless, vertically in the water column. This this whale was down pretty deep. He was maybe 100, 120 feet deep. So, although I was mostly doing free diving, this was one of the times where I strapped on a little tiny scuba tank, a little pony bottle, um, and I swam down, you know, that depth, about 120 feet. And again, I'm very sensitive to, you know, disturbing the animal, but He was very tolerant and deeply engaged in singing his song. And, you know, the closer I got that, that sound just resonated through my body cavity. It was vibrating in my chest and throughout my body. So, you know, imagine you're down in this lunar landscape. This whale was actually appearing to use the natural geology of the island as well as a natural amphitheater. This is what Nan Hauser believes, that some of these whales taking advantage of the oceanography there to amplify the sound so it broadcasts further out into the ocean. Um, So here's this whale hovering over some coral and I'm down there alone with them and it's this powder blue lunar landscape with this giant whale singing this haunting song that's vibrating through my body. It was truly otherworldly, but, um, but pretty special.
1: You're hearing Brian Scary here on Where We Live. He's a National Geographic photographer specializing in ocean wildlife. His newest book, Secrets of the Whales. He's also the photojournalist for the National Geographic cover story this month and a Disney Plus docu-series. More with Brian after the break, and we'll take your questions too 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. <laughs> This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Scientists are learning that some groups of whales and dolphins have their own dialects and feeding styles, cultural features once thought to be unique to humans. It's the focus of photographer Brian Scarry's new book, Secrets of the Whales, which is also the cover story of this month's National Geographic and a four-part docuseries. Brian is my guest today as we talk about what he learned over the course of his project. Because you have been an underwater photographer for so long, Brian, and you see firsthand the challenges that whales and other marine wildlife face because of us humans and our actions. Can you talk about how whales in this project of yours over the last three years, how you've seen them adapt to human behavior to their benefit?
2: Yeah, I mean, it it really is um, troubling, Lucy, to see the the problems have occurred in the world's oceans just in my own lifetime. You know, I, I began scuba diving, exploring the world's oceans in the late 1970s, and um, never dreamed that in my own lifetime I would see so much um, change occurring in the oceans, not for the better. Um, so uh, although I have seen specific instances of whales um, with these anthropogenic stresses, you know, dealing with them, uh, sometimes I guess it can be to their benefit, but most of the time it's it's detrimental. Um, you know, one of the few examples that I've seen, and I don't know how beneficial this really is, but there's something called depredation where whales um, are figuring out and have figured out how to take fish from fishermen. Uh, there's an example when I was in Alaska, for example, there are sperm whales, mostly male sperm whales that live out there in the waters off of um, Alaska. And fishermen go out with long lines. They use these very, very long lines. I mean, a, a, you know, hundreds of meters long with baited hooks and they're trying to catch a specific type of fish called sable fish or black cod a very lucrative business for them but sperm whales these you know giant toothed whales have figured out when they hear the sound of a winch you know pulling back the the line that inevitably will have fish on it they have figured out how to Swim in very delicately and pluck the fish one at a time off the the fishermen's lines. The fishermen have tried all kinds of things. You know, they've put decoy lines out. They have sounds. They do all kinds of things to try to deter the whales. But so far, the whales seem to be winning. Um, and now, is that a, a you know just a, an example of the whales figuring out a, a way to get an easy meal, or is it because there are less fish in the ocean mm-hmm. and they? you know, have resorted to, to doing this method in order to feed. Same similar situation that I described in the Norwegian Arctic with orca, where, you know, not that long ago when I went there in the 90s, they were naturally feeding on fish, and now more frequently they're hanging out next to the fishing boat. So, we, we, I don't really know whether that's um, a, a product of, you know, them just benefiting from humans or, you know, sort of having to do so because there are less. But what I do know is that, um, you know, that we very much live, of course, on a water planet, that every other breath that a human being takes comes from the ocean. It it takes in more carbon and gives us back more oxygen than any other part of our planet. Um, And yet, you know, in the last 60 years or so, we have taken... About 90% of the big fish out of the ocean. We have lost half the world's coral reefs. We dump 18 billion pounds of plastic into the ocean every year. There's so much fishing gear that animals like whales are often getting entangled and dying because of that. So, um, you know, for me, it's a little bit less about even focusing on a single species and more about looking globally at, at how we can be better stewards of the oceans.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a good point, having to adapt to survive and also a resiliency of some of these pods that you have witnessed firsthand. When you're in the water, I imagine you are so focused because you've got a limited amount of time and you're in the zone. But do you ever get emotional, Brian? Because you're so close to these animals and you know the impact that humans have had on them.
2: I absolutely do. Um you know particularly when you've spent time with a given group of whales in this case um, you begin to really know them you know their families you know their personalities um you sort of you know come back year after year to some of these places like the researchers who do this for much longer than i've done it and they they really feel a kinship to these animals Uh, sometimes it's celebratory you know you see a, a calf that was born on a given year and you come back the following year and you see that family still with that calf, you know, the first year of a calf's life can be very traumatic. Uh, many of them don't make it. Um, but when you see that they did, it's, it's, it's great. But on the other end of the spectrum, you know, I was uh, in Norway on Thanksgiving Day in 2018. Um, you know, I typically travel eight or nine months a year uh, for my work uh, doing these stories. But I've always managed to be home on some of the bigger holidays like Thanksgiving. So that year was the first time I was away from my own family on Thanksgiving and I woke up that morning in Norway and it was a cold snowy gray day. I pulled on my wetsuit, got on the boat, we went out, it's very dark, you know, we're just days away from the polar night when it's going to be dark 24 hours a day. But I saw this family of orca that was moving very purposely through the fjord and i made a number of dives I remember a number of jumps in the water free diving trying to see what was going on and eventually i saw that there was a mother uh, orca carrying her dead calf she had it sort of draped over the top of her head and i was able to make a a, a photo of this it's it's in uh, my book secrets of the wells and we also uh, with the researchers got drone footage that shows the family sort of closing ranks around that mom and and calf and you know there was no other way for me to interpret what I was seeing then sort of this mourning ceremony. It was clearly grief, and this was a mom that couldn't let go of her dead calf, and I don't know how long she carried it for, but um, we know that there was a similar situation in the Pacific Northwest not long ago where I think a, a mother orca carried her dead calf for something like 17 days before finally letting it go. And I think, you know, that is emotional when you see that, Um, you know, I woke up that day, as I said, thinking about uh, sort of pining for being back home and celebrating with my family. And then I saw this other family exhibiting great grief in the ocean. So, um, yeah, it it definitely affects you. Mm
1: -hmm. William's calling in from Washington, Connecticut. William, go ahead with your question. William, are you there? I don't think oh william is not there but he, i do see his question uh quickly brian uh, he wanted to know if you had any opinions on low frequency sonar and how this uh may interfere with whale communications
2: well yeah i'm, I'm certainly not an expert on on the low frequency sonar but i can say in general that many of the sounds that humans produce are highly detrimental to whales and dolphins and many animals in the ocean you know these are acoustic animals and they communicate historically over long distances it, it, it's been said that blue whales before humans and ship traffic and so forth they could communicate over almost the entire pacific ocean with very low frequency sounds but now there's so much noise so much ship traffic and sonars you know uh, navies and so forth using sonar that you know, not only interrupts the communications of these animals, but and sometimes disturbs them, thre- threatens them. There are, you know, mass strandings where pilot whales or other animals, uh, dolphins and whales, will beach themselves and die. Um, they actually get the bends; they suffer from decompression sickness because they are so frightened by the sound of sonar, uh, man-made sonar or noise, that they rocket to the surface and they they suffer these these traumas. So. You know, we, we have to be very aware of these things, the, the actions that we take. I read a while back that there was a study done along the mid-Atlantic coast of the United States about ocean noise some time ago. And after doing their study, they concluded that there was so much ocean noise that it would not be approved as an OSHA safe workplace um, if it were a workplace. So, you know, when we think about that, um, it doesn't get talked about very much. We hear about plastics and toxins and pollution and overfishing and so forth, but ocean noise, things like sonar and ship traffic are a real problem for whales.
1: Again, you're hearing Brian Scary here on Where We Live, a National Geographic photographer specializing in ocean wildlife. His newest book, Secrets of the Whales. Now, after the break, we're going to talk about one of the whales that live in our region, the North Atlantic right whale, and we'll, and we'll learn more about why its population is in trouble right after a break. <laughs> This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking to National Geographic photographer Brian Scarry about whales and what scientists are learning about these intelligent ocean giants. A species that lives in our region is in trouble, the North Atlantic right whale. Joining us now on Zoom is Eve Zukoff, an environment reporter at WCAI, that's Cape Cod's NPR station. Eve, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thanks so much for
1: having me you've been reporting on right whale conservation efforts. So when we say these animals are endangered, how endangered?
0: Yeah, so there are about 360 North Atlantic right whales left on the planet. Um, That's actually not as low as their population has ever been. It's been lower and they've been brought back. Uh, they, They are really resilient. But unfortunately, the trends are going in the wrong direction. With only 360 left, there's only about 85 females left. They're not giving birth very often. They continue, their population continues to decline every year. Uh, as scientists like to say that to me very often, you know, the death rate is just so exceeding, so far exceeding the birth rate. So it's not headed in the right direction.
1: Well, what do they know about why birth rates are so low, Eve?
0: Yeah, so typically, uh, North Atlantic right whales should begin calving at around age six, but they're not. They're they're not calving until about age ten, uh, and then on top of that, like they they should be giving birth every three years or so, but the time between births has gotten longer. Now it's eight years between calves. And there's a lot of really interesting research being done. I know Brian has been out on the same research vessel as I have where some of this research is looking into, you know, how does the body condition of females, uh, like, can can we measure how, uh, uh, how well a female is doing physically and be able to deduce how frequently they're giving birth and and the idea is even though you know we we can't just look at their declining population numbers and say that's the whole story Mm -hmm. part of the story is if these whales are under constant stress and we know that 80 percent of these whales that remain bear scars of entanglement in rope and fishing gear they're not going to give birth just like humans in that sense that you know that under that kind of stress they probably won't um, be able to, to repopulate. And so that that's an interesting field of research where hopefully we'll see uh, results relatively soon.
1: You mentioned the stress on uh, this particular species. When we think about the factors at play, especially in the New England region, the industries that, that are leading to, to some of these consequences. Can you talk about that and the tensions that, that exist?
0: Yeah, the tension is is the really inextricable part of this story. So probably the, the thing that people are most familiar with is uh, that right whales are frequently, as I mentioned, entangled in rope and fishing gear that's found in waters up and down the eastern seaboard. Uh, and a lot of that rope is coming from the U.S. lobster fishery from Maine, to to Massachusetts primarily, that's where a lot of the regulations we're seeing are happening. I will say they're also, the other leading cause of death beyond entanglement is ship strikes. So whales being hit by boats, um, either by propellers or just dead on contact. Um, They're really gruesome ways to die, but the the conflict really comes from the fact that the state of Massachusetts and, and Maine and other states and the federal government are required under the Endangered Species Act and a, a number of marine protection laws to protect and save these whales. They're critically endangered species. Critically endangered is, is one step away from extinction. Um, and, and so what they do is they say, okay, we're gonna add more, we have to add legally more regulations. Um, we have to impose them on the lobster fishery. and. You know, that could mean that has that will likely mean that we are able to save these whales. But it means that lobstermen are constantly having to change their gear to be more whale safe. They're having to change the way they fish. Right now uh, in the state of Massachusetts, there's three months of the year where they cannot fish, period, because that is where um because that's this this period where North Atlantic right whales are known to be here. And it takes a month to get their gear out of the water, a month to put it back in. So that's almost a five-month season where they're not making money. And then at the same time, they're having to mark their uh, rope in different ways every year. And they're having to splice it to put in Um, like weak links that will make their rope break under the the force of an adult right whale. I mean, the way that I like to think of it sometimes is it's almost like if you had a taxi driver and every year you said, all right, you're getting a bike this year and a truck next year and a, you know, a stick shift the year after that, you have to keep changing. And it's exhausting and it's frustrating for the lobstermen who are doing all of this and still feel really vilified by, um, The public and by conservation groups who, you know, turn to them and say, you're killing right whales and they say, you don't know what you're talking about. We're we're trying really hard.
1: Are there technological developments that could help
0: Eve? Yeah, well, it depends on who you ask, but uh, there is a field of study. that's looking into ropeless lobster fishing. And it's not technically ropeless, but basically what it is, is um, what lobstermen will be able to do with this technology is set their traps on the seafloor somewhere, um, come out into the Massachusetts Bay, if you will, and go to the general area where they last dropped their apps, last dropped their traps, open up an app on their phone, and they can hit retrieve gear on that gap, on that app, I'm sorry, and those traps should, uh, like a a bag inside those traps should inflate and shoot up to the surface. And there will then all of a sudden be a rope trailing behind that um, big inflatable bag with 20 traps behind it. And what that does is it removes the vertical line in the water um, where buoys traditionally are attached just standing all the time. They're at the surface, there's a line down to a trap, and that's what whales are getting entangled in. It's more than whales actually, it's it's a lot of marine mammals are getting entangled in those lines. The pro- there are a lot of problems. There are technical, technological problems. There are financial problems with this, regulatory problems with this. I mean, this technology is even ad- true advocates of it say this is a couple years away at best. Um, and really part of the problem is the cost right now. I mean, there are about a half dozen manufacturers making ropeless tech, but it can cost... to $70,000 for a boat's total gear conversion. It's just out of reach. Mm. On top of that, right now there's no way, those buoys serve a really important purpose. They tell other fishermen on the water where traps have been dropped. If you get rid of those buoys, you could actually create a really dangerous situation where a dragger, for instance, someone who who, you know, goes out catching scallops, they drag nets across the bottom of the sea floor. And if they can't see that there's heavy metal gear where they're dragging their nets, they're at risk of flipping their boat. I mean, it's it's just not ready for prime time.
1: Well, Eve, thank you so much for giving us that context around the North Atlantic right whale. Um, Brian Scary, we just have a, a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to talk with you just briefly about you know your observations of right whales and how concerned you are about this
2: particular species. Yeah, well, thanks for that, Lucy. And yeah, wonderful uh, commentary there by Eve. She she nailed it. Um, you know, I am very concerned. Uh, as I said, I did a story about right whales back in 2008 and hoped that by now things would have improved, but it's not improved and it's gone the other way. Um, I just released a, a little story about right whales. We were out on that research vessel that Eve was on with Dr. Michael Moore in Cape Cod Bay um, just a few weeks ago, and I was able to produce this drone footage that showed these whales what appeared to be hugging up on the surface. It was a SAG, a surface active group, um, which maybe you know helps people see them a little more empathetically. You know, we, we see them a little bit more um, than just something in peril. But the reality is that uh, within our lifetime, this animal could go extinct if we don't change behaviors. And I agree with Eve, you know, the lobstermen should not be villainized, Um, but this wasn't a problem, you know, long ago. So it's really, it's less of a lobster fisherman problem and more of a gear problem, a rope problem. And I believe that, you know, if we can all come to the table, you know, the fishers and the scientists and the conservationists, that there's gotta be a solution, but um, we have two choices. We can either let this animal go extinct or we can work to save it and, you know, the devil's in the details of course, but, but I think, you know, hopefully the, the latter saving it is, is going to be the option.
1: And as Eve mentioned, also having uh, those in the shipping industry as part of that conversation, we think of the, the ship strikes that are leading to their untimely deaths. Brian scary. it's always a pleasure to speak with you. If you want to see Brian's work, of course, you can go to our website. You can pick up the, the latest issue of National Geographic, and you can watch this lovely docuseries on Disney Plus and pick up Brian's book, Secrets of the Whales. Brian, we appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thanks, Lucy. And Eve Zukoff was here, environment reporter at WCAI, Cape Cod's NPR station. Eve, we will tweet out links to your great reporting. Thank you for your time today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can download where we live on your favorite podcast app. We'll be back tomorrow. Mm-hmm.